Hey dorks, just a quick message reminding you to head over to twitch.tv slash mindgappodcast and give us a follow. We live stream when we record our new podcast episodes and we're live streaming video game sessions on Saturday nights at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. We're playing super rad stuff like Among Us, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, Jackbox Games, and Tabletop Simulator. Come hang out and play along with us. That's twitch.tv slash mindgappodcast. Mind Gap Podcast. Welcome to Mind Gap Podcast, everybody. I'm Doug. I'm Justin. And joining us returning for, what is this, the third time at this point? Sure. The third time, uh, a wonderful human, a director, a screenwriter, a filmmaker, a hilarious person. Please welcome back Chris Charles. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, man, it's so great to have you back. And we have so much uh, to get into. Uh, So let's get some housekeeping stuff out of the way real quick. And we'll just get right on with the show. So first things first, if you guys don't already, please check us out on Spotify. Give us a follow. Also check us out wherever else you hear your podcast. But we're on Spotify. Check us out there. Also, if you'd like to, we'd love to have you come join our Discord community. We've got a lot of great people. Uh, we talk about nerd stuff. We talk about pop culture. We set up game nights, game sessions, play games with us. Come hang out. You can check us out on our social medias or come by the Twitch stream itself, uh, twitch.tv slash mindgetpodcast. You'll find a link to our Discord. Click on that, join our Discord community, and come part of the MindGap community. People are calling us MindGapers. I don't really like that, or Gapers for short. I feel like that's not the right branding, so we will work on the names for our fans, but you know, you can help us with that progress. So however you want to do it. You sure it's not Gappers? It's Gapers? Well, it's spelled G-A-P-E-R-S. So, I mean, we could say it's Gappers, but they call us Mind Gapers. And I'm like, nah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. So, two. I think think you need an extra P in there. (laughs) Yeah. I agree. I agree. I agree. Uh, Also, big news. We have merch at a place that we like. Finally, Redbubble.com. Go check us out there. Search for Mind Gap Podcast. We've got all sorts of great stuff there. We've got t-shirts. We've got coffee mugs. We've got travel mugs. We've got pillows. We've got backpacks. We've got everything. Go check us out there. Uh, just head over to Redbubble, search for Mind Gap Podcast, or just check out Nightbot if you're in our uh, our Twitch channel. It'll let you know where to go. You can check that out. Check out that merch. And also, don't forget, we do a video game live stream every Saturday night, 8 p.m. Central Time at twitch.tv slash mindgappodcast. We're always doing something fun, so please be sure to come and check that out. Housekeeping done. Let's turn to you, Mr. Chris Charles. How are you, sir? I'm terrific. I had a birthday recently, and my wife, a guest of the show, Pam, got me the best present. She got me a piece of land in Scotland. So now you can refer to me as Lord Christopher James Charles because I'm a lord. Oh, Dude, yes. If that's not the most UK name uh, ever. Yes. <laughs> lord Christopher James Charles. You sound like you're from Braveheart. That's really what it sounds it's like. pretty cool. You know, I always wanted to get knighted, but that's tough to do unless you save a bunch of babies in the UK. <laughs> oh, so I, you know, now I'm a lord and it's, it's great. Hey, you know. Oh, my goodness. 
I like it. I think it's fantastic. It's suitable. This is step one to taking over the throne. (laughs) Like you got your foot in the door. And if King Ralph, uh, you know, taught me anything, uh, it's the (laughs) fact that it's doable. What a great, what a nice reference, King Ralph. Yeah. So as your first act of Lord to instill uh, Prima Nocta uh, in your, in your lands. Well, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot going on. I'm going to have to take a look at the docket and see what happens. You, know? <laughs> you got a lot of executive uh, actions to take, you know, now that yeah, you're Lord, you know. For my little parcel of land, like whether or not I plant a bush. <laughs> <laughs> I think bush is definitely on there, but you should probably, you know, if you're doing Prima Nocta, that's probably got to be towards the top, you know, just make sure you get that squared away, you know, in case anyone, you know, shows yeah. up in the land, you know, just well, whatever. I'm saying if you're doing Prima Nocta, no bush, no bush no whatsoever. Bush. <laughs> yeah. I'm a fan of the 70s, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Good decade, man. Great for Good a lot decade. of things. It's a great decade. <laughs> well, we're we're so excited to have you back because um, the last time you were here, which was episode 246, which we were talking just before the show started that it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but it's been almost a year, honestly, which is terrifying if you think about it. Um you had just uh, talked about how uh, we, we discussed how the, the movie that you had uh, written, The Marksman, starring Liam Neeson, was uh, essentially, you know, uh, at that point, I'm assuming it was filmed and everything like that. And actually, I think shortly after that, there was a trailer that launched for it, which is really exciting. And this week, uh, the movie is being released. And I mean, I'm so excited. I'd love to just talk to you about that. What's it been like? It's, uh, you know, watching this movie. I know you've created movies and you've, you've seen them in the theaters before, but what is this? Congratulations for stars. And what has this whole, yes, whole thing been like? That. Thank you, guys. Yeah, it's, as you know, it's been a long journey. The, the idea was first hatched way back in 2009. I remember telling you about it, Doug, back when we worked at the hotel together and been through a lot of revisions over the years, a lot of ups and downs, had some incredible people in Hollywood read the script. Um, and to see it all come to fruition like this at this level with the, the talent that, that brought it to life has been a dream come true. And it's especially been meaningful for me because I live right next to a movie theater that's screening the movie I co-wrote. So after the, the show, I'm just going to walk down the street and I'm going to go to the movie. I'm going to see it for the second time. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been it's been pretty surreal, guys. And. We also just found out that the marksman just overtook Wonder Woman 1984 and is now number one at the box office. Uh, (laughs) Take that, Wonder Woman. (laughs) Dude, that's amazing. That's hilarious. Not happy. They're not happy about that. So let me ask you this: since That's you've over so cool. since you've overtaken them, have you already been greenlit for Marksman two and three? Just like Wonder <laughs> Woman is getting additional films based on their success, um, you know, uh, with their release of, of their movie. And not, not to shit on that film, I just didn't understand. They're like, it's been successful. I'm like, based on what? Anyway, continue. Well, not quite, not quite. Uh, we're still early on in the release. Uh, the movie will likely be available exclusively for the next couple of months. Uh, after which it's going to come out on demand, digital, uh, Blu-ray, DVD this spring. Uh, so we hope that as more theaters continue opening, uh, including uh, in the Chicagoland area, we heard that uh, 
some will be opening in the coming days. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, we hope more people as they get vaccinated as well and they can see it safely in theaters, that it'll have a nice long life in theaters. That's so exciting. So you're saying that you're going to go see it for the second time. What was it like seeing it for the first time? It was incredible, guys. I mean, I had seen a lot of the movie uh, on set. I'd, I'd seen footage. That was the first time I had seen the final product. And it was a, it was a pretty emotional experience, I'll be honest with you. I mean, seeing these characters that I've known and I've loved for so long and seeing a masterful filmmaker, Robert Lorenz, what he was able to do and, and beautiful performances from Liam Neeson and newcomer Jacob Perez, who plays the young Mexican boy in the film. It, it was a pretty cathartic experience. And to be able to share that with my wife and my family uh, was just the icing on the cake. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can't wait to go back and see it again and and again and again, because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be out for a while. And, and it's only so often you can see a movie like that on the big screen. I think you might have touched on it briefly the last time you were on, but how how close were you to? Because obviously, you took you ten years to write it and get it, you know, in front of the right people and and get it to the point where it was being made. How close were you during to the film during the process of production? You know, it, it depends on the project, the writer's involvement. You know, Danny, my writing partner, Danny Kravitz, and I were very lucky in that we got to collaborate closely with Robert, who became the third writer on the team and directed. So we did a lot of revisions with Rob. And, you know, at a certain point, once the script got locked, once Liam signed on, our work was done. Um, <laughs> you know, we we kind of, which is kind of a relief, right? Because sometimes yeah. if you're on set and you're doing revisions, oftentimes that's not a good thing. That can often mean that things are not going as planned. You've got to change locations and maybe you lost an actor or something. So for, to be able to go to set and just kind of sit back and and enjoy the ride was was really a, a great experience. Oh man, that must have been so cool to just be on set and because um, you know you also you know, have directed, uh, you've done you know uh, great work on a lot of other things. You know this one is this the first thing that you've written that has has gotten fully produced, or have you written other stuff as well? Yeah, I've, I've written. Uh, Quite a few things. This is the first thing to get produced. Gotcha. Wow. So from a writer's perspective, that must have been very interesting because you've been through the other process, you know, director and, and, and producing casting and things like that. Like, how is how did this was this how is this different from the from those other uh, aspects of filmmaking? Yeah, that's a good question, Doug, because usually as a producer, you have a lot more control throughout the process, um, you know, the entire process. So to, to be a writer and to just kind of be involved in that early portion and then to just step back and, and watch things evolve was, was a unique experience. I compare it to I, what it must be like to raise a child. You know, it's your baby for so many years, you're watching it grow and then you, you send it off to college. That's production. And you just hope that your kid's going to turn out right. And <laughs> you know, we, had a, we had a beautiful baby because, you know, it's 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 a good film. Um, you know, not every critic has loved it. I think I think some critics, because of Liam, they kind of put him in a certain box because of some of the action sure. thriller films that he's done in recent years. But the movie is is much deeper than it seems. It, at first glance, it is a Taken-esque thriller. But it's really about two characters uh, who 
help each other in their hour of need and and open up to one another. Uh, and it's very much a character-driven drama at its heart. Uh, and it's a different role for Liam. You know, you guys have seen him before where he's killing dozens of bad guys and maybe in some roles you don't actually fear for him. But in this movie, he's a little older. Uh, he's not invincible. Uh, he's in very real danger throughout this story. Uh, so it's it's definitely not your typical Liam-flavored thriller. Typical yeah. Liam I know what you mean, though, because, right, because you get used to seeing certain actors and certain things, and you can sort of, like, see just a trailer and be like, ah, I know what that movie's about, you know? Which, again, there's so many elements that goes into making something like this, right? Because you're trying to appeal to different markets. There's the business aspect of it, which can get really gross, but it's necessary, right? Uh, because that's how these films get made. Um, so I, it, it oftentimes makes me wonder how, because I judge harshly off of trailers right i mean that's their advertisement for me i was like am i gonna see this movie and i'll look at something like, I feel like yes or no most most people do though that, mm-hmm. that's just the, the norm that's how society does things now we consume trailer trailers ravenously yeah and i have for many years um and i think if you're you see a typical actor that you're used to and you see them like it was like seeing the trailer for um, Born uh, Jason, uh, the Born Identity, right? I was like, I don't believe that Matt Damon's kicking anyone's ass because at the time he hadn't done that. I was like, bullshit. But I ended up watching the movie. I'm like, actually, this is really good. Like, and I believed it. And from that point on, like, it doesn't seem weird to see Matt Damon as someone who could punch someone and 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 not you know break his hand or something. Like, it it actually it makes sense. So I I understand like the idea of like Liam Neeson is hunting. Mexicans, you know, that's not what the movie's about, but it's like, you know, you can kind of see just from really quick glimpses is the marksman, you know, it's like, wait a minute, I think I know what this movie is. It's like, no, it's, it's really not like, and you know, they've probably got to hit the appeal on some of that stuff to try and get people to, 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 to come see it. And they're like, Hey, you've seen them in these movies. Check this out too. So I get it. It's probably a little bit misleading. You're absolutely right. You know, the marketing materials are designed to go after the masses And what can often happen with a film is you set certain expectations for what the story is. And sometimes that can leave people feeling disappointed because they may feel they were misled by a poster, a trailer, and a marketing campaign thinking they're getting this and they're actually getting that. And it makes sense, right? As you said, from a business perspective, because it is a business. You know, you spend a lot of money to make a movie. And especially these days during a pandemic, when 65% of theaters are closed in the country, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a very difficult marketplace. And even aside from the theatrical landscape, uh, it's, a, it's been a very overcrowded marketplace as well. Uh, so I, I totally understand that. I, I just tell people, if you like Liam and if you like contemporary Westerns and, and if you like road movies and if you like character driven stuff that, still has a little bit of action and excitement, then then I think you're going to love this film. That's really cool. Legitimately, it does feel like a film for everybody because like you just said, like it's got the, it's got the road movie aspect, contemporary Western action thriller, you know, um, interpersonal, you know, like searching, you know, searching who he is and his, like there is a lot of, it sounds like there's a lot of layers and a lot of uh, context to, to, what has gone into this movie. Yeah, that's, that's always been our intent with this film. Uh, you know, Rob Lorenz, he, 
he's worked on some of the most iconic films over the last 20 years, producing everything with Clint Eastwood from Mystic River to American Sniper. Some of my personal favorite films like Gran Torino and Letters from Iwo Jima. So he, you know, when he read the script, we were honored that he loved it. And when he started working with us on it, it was it was incredible just to see how he found moments that worked and then he made them work better. And he just oh, made it a little bit more elevated and a little bit more accessible to the masses. And and of course, his his Eastwoodian style is apparent. If you guys like Clint Eastwood's films, uh, Rob definitely, you know, he spent a lot of time alongside Clint producing and, and second unit directing. He learned a lot from him. So he has that simplicity in his storytelling. And it was amazing, guys, to watch Liam come to set knowing exactly what to do. He would just ace the first take. Then they'd get a second take and he'd give a little nuance. And then maybe they'd get a third take for safety and then they'd move on. And, wow. and I've been on set before and I've seen directors get 10, 15, 20 takes because it's digital. They want options. Maybe they're not very confident that they got what they needed. So to see these guys just know exactly what they were doing and exactly the story that they were telling and get two, three, four takes and then move on. It was pretty incredible. It was it was like a, a masterclass for me as a filmmaker. That, I, oh, go ahead, Justin. That by itself has to, like, you say that, and I get real jive because when we've, you know, done our short films and stuff, we do because it's digital, and just because we've got a little bit of time, we'll go take after take, and we have a lot of options. It makes it that much more difficult when you come to the editing process because you've got that many more options to sift through. But to have people who are working at that level and just know exactly what they want to hit and someone as masterful as Liam, who's had a, you know, God, decades long career in the industry and just knows what he's doing like that, that had to have been, yeah, just an incredible experience. Is this the most experienced people that you have seen or worked with on set, would you say? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. 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 I've been on some big sets before, uh, you know, as a background extra or something. I, when I was in film school, I, I got to meet Sam Raimi when I was, you know, man in crowd as the train whooshes by. And, and I, I, I remember I went to the set of Proof. I don't know if you guys remember that with Jake Gyllenhaal and Gwyneth Paltrow. And, um, and Jake was, uh, he had come up with some mathematical equation and he was running around and he slammed into me. And after the take, he came up to me and he apologized. He asked me if I was okay. He said, I was really in the moment, but I feel like I really nailed you there. He like bumped me into a wall. And I ended up talking to Jake Gyllenhaal for like 10 minutes. Oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I had these weird little experiences, but that's just when I'm a background extra and and then I just cut from the movie. So to to be involved in in a capacity like this as a writer, it was definitely the, the most veteran and and talented group of filmmakers i had the privilege of being around wow and i think that's something to to note too is a lot of people i think it's hard for them to fathom how difficult it is to be an actor especially a good one the idea that someone could just show up to set know their lines and deliver them impactfully probably seems like pretty easy shit to people but i've watched people try to give presentations into a room full of 10 people and they (laughs) shit their pants so the idea of uh you know, just they can look at the lines and they can go through it and decide this is how this character would, this is what they mean when they deliver it. This is how they're going to deliver it. And they add their own spin onto it or they work with you to be like, what's this character? Cause it's also not filmed sequentially. 
You know, you film based on where you get your location. So it's like, cool. We're at the uh, the big battle scene right now. All right. You've been through hell and back. All right. Get angry. Uh, you're, you're feeling dead inside a little bit. You want revenge for your family who's been killed. But at the same time, you're trying to make sure the hostages don't die. Okay, ready, go. And then you hopefully remember all your lines, too. You know, like, it's just... There's so much that goes into that that I don't think people realize. I took three acting classes and I was like, this is really hard. Like, <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to. You're not kidding. And, and, and so much of, I think, what makes a believable performance is what actors refer to as the moment before. Getting into that headspace of where was I? What, I, what was I doing? And what am I bringing into this scene? Mm. We were actually very fortunate with The Marksman because the film was shot over 29 days uh, mostly chronologically. Oh, wow. Uh, it began in New Mexico. And of course, the film starts on the Arizona uh, Mexico border uh, and then ends in Chicago. But we shot the entire film in New Mexico and Ohio, which did an amazing job posing as all of those states. Wow. Uh, but because of the nature of that journey and beginning in New Mexico and then making our way up to uh, the greater Cleveland area. Uh, most of it was chronological, which I think really helps when you're you're doing a road movie where characters grow and evolve over time. Yeah, I can't imagine being like <laughs> being Chris Evans and be like, "All right, we're gonna do the Avengers assemble scene right now." Okay, you ready? Okay, and then this is what we're starting with because we have the sound stage reserved for this time, so we're gonna go ahead and start with this. It's like, all right, Thanos just whipped your ass. All right, he stabbed you. Your shields all beat to shit. But all your friends are coming, and you have to say, Avengers, assemble. Ready, go. It's like, we haven't even done anything, and I have to start here? It's like, yeah. You're at your it. emotional peak, all right? <laughs> you just, like, you hit your highest highs and your lowest lows, and action. And yeah, go. Just and right out the gate. The ability to go to that place emotionally, too. Like, I am so stunted in that regard. Like, I'm like, I can play angry and loud. That's what I'm good at. That's what I'm really good at. You want me, you want any more nuance to that? Meh. Sorry. Doug, here's the thing. People have made great careers being typecast, so you're not out of the running yet. Right? Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Oh. Large, bald, and angry. I mean, gee, I wonder what role I'd get cast for. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sure there's a good prison scene somewhere with a tattoo you could slap on the back of my head that I'd go really good with, you know? <laughs> well, you never know, Doug. Don't stop believing in yourself. <laughs> I still remember when I was an extra in one of the movies you made, and it was... Uh, with a guy who played Big Pussy. I forget that guy's name. Uh, yeah, Vincent Pastor. Yes. And I was like, I was in the scene. I'm like, what am I doing in the scene? Like, I have no business being here. And I'm just like at the bar, just like sipping, you know, watered down Coke and just being scared. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I don't. What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to look? Ah, there's a camera. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm an extra. It's a lovely cameo. If anybody hasn't seen The Devil's Dominoes, which, by the way, no one ever needs to see. (laughs) Hey, it's got a Baldwin in it, okay? Other than to see Doug's cameo as Thug working for Big Pussy from The Sopranos. Oh, the wildest thing is when I got married. We went uh, down to Disney World at the Virgin Megastore. We were just wandering around. That movie was available at the Virgin Megastore. Like, so I think my brother found it. He goes, dude, isn't this a movie that you were in? I'm like, holy shit, what's this doing here? Like, this, this isn't Disney World. This is crazy. It was like 25 bucks. He's like, you got to buy it. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to spend 25 bucks. You know, I was like, that's, that's a lot. Did you stand 
Did you stand in in the store with like a, a sharpie and just offer your signature to people? <laughs> who wants? I, who wants? Uh, who wants a signature? Who wants it? <laughs> if you buy this for me, I will sign it for you. But then I keep it. Slotty says, "Doug, big pussy thug." That's right. There it is. <laughs> is that a is that a new T-shirt? <laughs> if it's is it on Amazon? Do you know? Because if it is, like, I will host a watch party. It probably is. It's it. You know, it's one of those movies that I'm sure you could you could enjoy watching. My my old roommate played a uh, the the son of Big Pussy too. The uh, his corpse at least. So I had all sorts of friends that made these little cameos in the movie. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I love that. On on the marksman as like as a filmmaker, what what would you say the biggest takeaway was for you? watching these people on set and like if we any filmmakers are are listening to this what's one thing that you're like fuck that completely changed the way i look at something watching them work yeah yeah or just anything anything on set like something that you took away from this movie that you didn't have prior you know i i really respected that we had a lot of people working on this film who who had done incredible things, but they chose to be there, not necessarily because they were making a ton of money uh, or or that they didn't have other options, but they they showed up for Rob and they showed up because they believed in the story. I was shocked, guys. I was I had met this PA, um, really tall guy, super friendly. He was helping, you know, get people coffee, get coffee for Liam. He'd a, he'd always ask, can I get you anything? guy was always positive. He's always working hard. Unbeknownst to me until maybe the last day um, before I, I left set, I found out that this guy was a, a wide receiver in the NFL. What? Okay. <laughs> and here he was offering to get me coffee. And I'm thinking, shouldn't I be getting you coffee, man? And and it was incredible because, you know, this guy, he he had a, he did, work, he did a few seasons in the NFL. He, he played for some great teams. And then he wanted to follow his dreams. He wanted to get into film, wow. but he knew that he had to work his way up. And it was pretty inspiring to, to see that. Um, some of the other folks that worked on the film had, you know, worked with Rob for many years and worked on a lot of Clint's projects. And it, it was really inspiring to see them all come out and to talk about how, you know, just as important for them, more important for them uh, than the paycheck is, is the project. Wow. And, uh, Danny and I were constantly humbled when people came up to us and thanked us. Uh, and we said, what do you mean? Thank you for working on this. And they said, no, thank you for writing this story. Um, we, you know, we're here because of that and we believe in it. So um, it's kind of a roundabout answer, Justin, but I, uh, it, it reaffirmed for me this whole experience that you should never stop following your dreams hmm. and they, they don't often come easy. Uh, this certainly didn't. Um, it's, it's not easy, but if you put in the work, uh, and if you believe in what you're doing, you know, eventually something's going to happen. Unless you're Rudy, but that's a conversation Fuck. for another time. I knew, I knew it. I knew it. You knew it was going to happen. I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. The minute, the minute that Chris said, <laughs> I can see it in your body never language. Never give up in your dreams. I went, eh, we're going to tell Look, you. I was Rudy's waiting for the NBC, the more, you know, music. <laughs> Where was that cue? <laughs> I said that is you something I should have. That is something I should have. You're right. <laughs> That's uh, no, I, I mean, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Um, you know, I, I respect really you. Sucks. 
that too uh that i respect you so much chris because you know when you and i worked um at a shitty job at a shitty hotel uh for many years um you were busting your ass then you're busting your ass now you've just been really giving 110 percent of yourself to film and um you know we were just talking last night in our production meeting about you know um just right out of college making chicago overcoat you know, uh, a feature film with a pretty good sized budget, you know, uh, and and being able to work with uh, Frank Vincent and uh, some other amazing actors and things like that. I mean, what an experience. And you and guys like John Bosher, you know, have really just continued to work really hard. And you've I think you guys have, in my opinion, have established yourselves as like these are the not fucking around guys like. There's a lot of artists out there. There's a lot of creative folks. I love them to death, but I think we've all met them where they're like, yeah, man, I'm going to do this, and they do it half-ass. Most improvisers, insert their name here. Um, but the idea that you know you 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 guys approach to it with a, a sense of professionalism and a sense of commitment, I think s- just speaks volumes to the success that you've had and what you've been able to do because this is not a tough career path to go down it's full of rejection just like anything with creative you know anything creative that you do so it it's you know i feel like just being on the sidelines and seeing like liam neeson's gonna be in this movie i was like hey yes i remember this i remember you were right like i just feel great because you've been working on it and it's so exciting to see something like this like come to fruition so what i'm trying to say is i love you man and i'm happy for you and i'm proud of you Thank you, guys. I, I, that means a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah. So the last time you were here, you were talking about how potentially there would be a seller's market based on the industry. I'm curious now that folks like Warner Brothers have decided to dump all of their movies into the streaming universe uh, and, and and how like different like, you know, Disney and what their sort of approaches to things. How do you approach the landscape now from the filmmaking standpoint, especially with theaters kind of, you know, uh, you know, that's something I'd like to get to, too, is whether or not you think they're going to make it. But what do you look at when you look at the market for film? Is it still a seller's market? Is content still are people still starving to to buy stuff? Like, what do you think? It's a that's a tough question to answer, but I'll start with theatrical. I don't think theatrical is dead. Um, I think, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we're we're losing a lot of the mom and pop theaters, um, and I and I hope that they can come back in time. Fortunately, some of the bigger ones, like the one near me, the Marcus Theaters, they're able to weather the storm. AMC and and others. Um, you know the the challenge hasn't been that it's that it's not safe to go to theaters. There's a big misconception, I think, uh, that it's not safe to go to theaters. Now, of course, under certain certain circumstances, it would not be safe, right? Like if it's a packed house and that people are coughing and sneezing all over each other, that wouldn't be safe. But the theater I went to, guys, they had masks, social distancing, they're sanitizing everything extremely limited capacity. I felt more safe in the movie theater than I feel going to the grocery store. Okay. And I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of theaters have been lumped into these categories uh, in in various states throughout the country. And the science doesn't back that. I think they actually did a study and they couldn't trace a single case of COVID uh, being spread in a movie theater, not a single one. And yet they just kind of got lumped into this category with other businesses. 
so I, I hope that I hope that as theaters reopen, um, people will start going back. The biggest issue for many of them has actually been a lack of content. Uh, and that's simply because the studios don't have faith that they're going to make their budgets back. And we've seen that all the way from Tenet through uh, Wonder Woman, although, of course, they did the hybrid model, uh, which I actually thought was a pretty genius move. Um, you know, it wasn't good that Warner Brothers didn't tell their filmmakers what was going on. That was Minor detail, little asterisks there. <laughs> but you can't deny, I mean, we I don't know what the data is right now, but HBO was was not a big player until now and their numbers have been going up uh and with each new release you're going to see more and more people signing up uh so i I think that was ultimately a very wise move uh i'm glad to see that they're still releasing in theaters because the exhibitors desperately need new titles um and and i'm happy to hear that markets like uh chicago are going to be reopening hopefully in the coming days uh as, as certain numbers are achieved as far as the marketplace goes guys um you know, it was great years ago when Netflix was buying tons of content. Hulu was buying a lot of third-party independent stuff. Uh, unfortunately, Netflix realized that spending a little bit more up front would ultimately save them. They thought, well, why don't we just make this stuff and own it forever and, and build up a library instead of license it for a year or two and then have to constantly replenish the library? So they're spending probably about 90% of their budget on original productions now, uh, and the rest of us are, are kind of fighting over the scraps. So it's difficult when you're talking about the big streamers. The good news is, because of the pandemic, we've seen a huge increase in home video revenue and the rise of a lot of mid to lower tier streamers, and all of them want to follow suit with Netflix and do original content. Uh, And so what that means is it's going to create new opportunities because everybody wants to justify their monthly subscription fee. And how do you do that? You do that because this is the only place you can watch this show or this movie or whatever it is. So I think that in time, we're going to see a lot more opportunities crop up uh, for independent content creators not necessarily the the Netflix and Disney type opportunities that go to the A-listers, uh, but opportunities nevertheless. That's an interesting point because there was an article in the LA Times today that was talking about uh, how stream services are dealing with churn right now, which is people will hop onto the stream, watch the show that they want, and then cancel their subscription. So the idea of it, because there's also, like you said, there's a shitload of options for streaming services out there right now. Um, you know, off the top of my head, what is it? There's Amazon Prime, there's Hulu, there's Netflix, there's HBO Max, there's Showtime, there's Peacock, there's, you know, it's just, there's so many things to watch this stuff in. So you make a good point in that. Yeah, they're probably, the, the long-term goal is to generate their own content so they can save on licensing, but they're still going to need stuff to fill that void in the meantime. Or folks like yourself, and John could potentially, you know, hopefully become content creators on those platforms themselves, you know, to, you know, have a situation because Justin and I have talked about this and Justin and, and uh, Drew are big proponents of the low to mid budget, you know, um, creative project. The uh, uh, I mean, I guess another question is, do you think the two hundred and fifty million dollar movie is gone for a while <laughs> or is, is that still going to be OK <laughs> in the near future? Like, I don't even know. No, that, that's a good question. I mean, that it's. I would, I would imagine studios would be very reluctant to greenlight 
movies at that price point these days, because obviously a lion's share of that revenue was coming from theatrical. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think we're going to see, unless it's like a big Disney Plus production, uh, a big Netflix production, I'm sure you guys heard about Gal Gadot's new spy thriller going to Netflix. And, mm-hmm. and you know, they're they're paying huge amounts of money to, to produce content. Um, so it's, it's kind of a shift, right? The, the studios aren't going to be doing that so much, but you're going to start to see the big streamers, uh, filling that void. Uh, in the meantime, um, I've long been worried about the medium budget film because, you know, in recent years, it's either been a hundred plus million dollar blockbuster with, with a built in audience or, you know, a few million and under. And, that's a shame because there are just so many good movies that can be done at the five, 10, 20, $30 million amount uh, that have just been too risky for financiers and distributors. Right. Because if it's a $20 million movie and they're going to spend another 10 million in uh, P and a, you know, marketing uh, that's 30 million. That means you need to grow 60 million plus at the box office just to break even. Uh, and that's, that's tough these days. Yeah, I think you're speaking music to Justin's ears. He's always been oh, like, yeah. bring the medium budget film back. Yeah, Drew got me on that on that bandwagon real quick. I honestly, though, think that those, I, we, I think we're seeing those move, uh, or that, at least that type of storytelling move to the, the television show now because yeah. we're seeing the, you know, what is The Mandalorian was $15 million an episode, which I still argue is an egregious amount of money for an episode of television, but you know, in that realm, I think there's an argument to be made where we're seeing those stories, perhaps instead of being consolidated into two hours, stretched out into 10 hour long chunks, you know? And so you expound upon some more of the characters and you maybe put them in a few more settings. And now you've got your mid-level movie stretched out into a 10 episode series, you know, with the potential to continue if, if you so desire. So I'm, I'm wondering, I feel like that might be the savior of, I think this, the storytelling has to shift a little bit, but you can take that and you can take those movies and kind of transition them over to, to streaming series. Basically. I think, yeah, I think I saw like today it was someone posted the budget for the next mission impossible movie, which was 152 million. And then the budget for Falcon and winter soldier, which was 150 million. So Falcon and Winter Soldier is just two million short of what the next Mission Impossible movie is going to be, and I would I just started shaking his I head. Issues. I have issues with that. I have so many issues. But if you think about it, Justin, the time over however many episodes, it seems like you're getting more bang for your buck, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, you, you you guys are absolutely right. I mean, it, right, it's Chris, really interesting. Real quick, to, I, yeah, I just yeah. need to say I just need to say to Doug, <laughs> please go ahead. <laughs> No, no, that was important. Um, you know, you're right, Justin. Uh, episodic is really key right now. It's safe for people to watch at home. And uh, you're right, you're getting more content. Uh, and, and it's interesting that M- the MCU has already kind of been transitioning into that space, right, with yeah. with all the series that are coming out. So I wouldn't be surprised if they stayed in that space for a while until enough people get vaccinated and theatrical starts to look a little bit more like it did pre-COVID. Yeah, because I can't imagine that they would want to be, again, pumping in the 
200 plus million dollars for any of these giant properties, which they know have have selling power. They know that people are going to come see them, but they're just going to be throwing all those dollars out the window if they release them anytime in the next even probably I would say the next year and a half to two years. Well, that's the thing. Like they keep, you know, they bump back Black Widow. So, you know, you had like the delay of Dune. Um, you've had all this sort of stuff. And obviously Dune will be released on HBO Max and things like that. But they are so they're like, we've got to make sure this gets some money because we've invested so much into it. Like, but at the same time, especially when it comes to Marvel and how everything's so interconnected, it's like, well, at some point, because I don't think they anticipated on WandaVision being the launching point for phase four. <laughs> Right. You know, Black Widow was already supposed to come out. So now they're like, <laughs> um, where do we uh, fit this into it? But obviously, Disney and Marvel have, have adjusted themselves relatively well uh, to this sort of stuff. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a wild time. Like, I, you know, when you, hearing you talk about the movie theaters is actually refreshing because I've looked at the movie theaters as like a giant cesspool of COVID. And for no other reason than it's a it's a dark, enclosed space. So I'm like, that's where bad things happen. Right. Like. You know, um, that's where it has to be. So only, only if Pee Wee Herman's in there with you. Okay. <laughs> so like, I just I look at that. I'm like, oh yeah, of course, people are going to be smashed in there. They're because the other thing too is at the end of the day, I just don't trust other people. That's what it boils down to. Um, I don't trust other people to be responsible. So the idea of being in an enclosed dark space with other people, you know. Uh, hopefully they're wearing masks. Hopefully they're not slobbering and secreting, you know, everywhere. Um, you know, what? The floors are always sticky in there, guys. What do you think people do, Doug? The floors are always sticky in the movie theater. That is a fact. That is a fact. Sitting there secreting something. I can't speak for all theaters, but the one down the street here, the Marcus Theaters, has been doing an amazing job, guys. I mean, because because of the capacity limitations, too, my my father... He was just like, I'm just going to buy out the theater. And <laughs> right? he just, I love that. He just bought out the whole theater and invited our family out. And it, we, we all know that we take the pandemic seriously. And so it was a very safe experience. And guys, I was shocked. I'm telling you, think about the grocery store. Yeah. The ceilings are yeah. typically shorter. There's more people. A lot of them are not socially distancing. Um, That's it, very it was, true. It was significantly safer. Now, I can see if, if a theater has, you know, 50% or more capacity, why people might be hesitant. Um, the other thing that's been helpful, especially for the marksmen and other films that are out right now are the drive-ins, which oh, obviously right. is not a viable option for, for guys like us. But, you know, my buddy, uh, Luke, uh, he went, uh, he drove like 30 minutes outside of Los Angeles to a drive-in and, and he saw the marksman on the big screen. He said it was a great experience. So there, there's a lot of states down in the South where drive-ins are open and they're doing plenty of business. And that's where the lion's share of the revenue is coming in for our film right now. Well, oh, that awesome. too. And like comedians have also used the drive-in theaters as a way to perform. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, you know, Burt Kreischer is, is went on a, I think he was the first one to kind of go on the comedy tour of with all the drive-ins. And that's been kind of a place for people to be like, all right, cool. We can make this happen. So again, the creativity of uh, the industries to be like, let's figure this out. You know, how are we going to make this work? Um, well, even in Chicago over the summer, they did the same thing. They would take those giant shipping crates and they stacked three high in parking lots by McCormick place, stretched a tarp over them and they sold, uh, they sold uh, tickets to get into that. So they made their own drive-ins and even on the lake, they had floating drive-ins where you could 
uh, if you had a boat, you could bring your boat out and they had a floating screen. And so a lot of, I know, Doug, I know. That's, you shouldn't Not have a boat. Doug. You shouldn't have Not a boat. You shouldn't have a boat. It's a depreciating but asset. It's a bad sh- investment. Should you be penalized by not being able to see a movie? I'm saying, I mean, hey, you get some sort of value out of it. It won't be monetary, but you might as well go see something, you know, make something yeah. worthwhile out of your boat. But if, if you're in the uh, uh, the type of area where you can do uh, a drive-in, like that that makes so much so much sense that we'd see the, the resurgence of drive-ins now, you know? Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's really exciting. Chris, what do you think it's going to stay? Like in the industry, like right now, like, do you think there's anything that's permanently changed? Like, do you think the um, simultaneous release of content uh, in theaters and on streaming is going to stay? Is that temporary? Are there any elements that you're seeing right now where you're like, oh, this may have shifted, this may have changed things forever and we may not go back? Yeah, I mean, I think the release strategy, even back the last time I was talking to you guys about the Trolls movie, you know, we've seen these different models and, and how it may make more sense for certain companies to forego the traditional theatrical window. Um, and, you know, the, the films that I work on with John at Throughline Films, every film has a different release strategy, right? Um, they're all different. Some of them shouldn't come out in theaters. They're going to lose money. Some of them come out in theaters simply to make more money on demand. Some of them come out on demand. Some of them premiere on TV. Uh, or, or streaming. It, it just depends. So I think the, the one big thing from the pandemic is that it's shattered the traditional model. And we're going to start to see a lot more hybrid models that make sense based on the individual film. That excites me to hear that because yeah. um, I kind of get, I've said this multiple times before in the podcast, I get sick of people doing things because it's traditionally how things have been done. You know, it's just because this is this is how it's always been done. It's like, yeah, but should we try something else? They're like, yeah, but it's too risky. I mean, everyone else is already doing this, so there's no real incentive to try something, or you're going to piss someone off. Like, imagine before the pandemic, base, you know, Warner Brothers trying to pull the shit they're doing right now, right? No way in hell they would be able to like, we're just going to go all in HBO Max. They would never do that. But if they did, they would have pissed off people even more so. You know, same thing with Universal pissing off you know amc by releasing trolls they're like what the fuck are you doing we had an agreement you know and so but i think that sort of stuff is important because i feel like some of the players in this and again this is just purely speculation from being on the sidelines some people have been dragging ass on innovation and i think the market is clamoring for something but similar to the music industry around the year 2000 when napster came out people wanted digital releases of music the record labels knew this, but they just didn't want to do it. They didn't want to invest in it. They loved the idea that their CDs cost at least 20 bucks, and they were making bank on it. And then the demand finally broke through, illegally, of course, which changed things forever. And so I kind of look at this as an opportunity because Justin and I have covered this. I I have a kid that's almost five years old, and it's, it's hard getting to the movie theater sometimes. So if something like Onward comes out, I prefer it to come out so I can buy it right away or I can stream it right. Like I will instantly pay for that. No problem. When Black Widow ultimately comes out and I think they're going to do a hybrid thing, I'm going to do it on streaming. I will pay the $30 rental fee to watch that movie at home because I'm not going to go to a movie theater like with her. I just doesn't feel good right now to do that. So I am as a consumer, I love these options because I think it's something that we should explore. And kind of what I've seen over the pandemic is I've just been very curious about the socioeconomical parts of this where 
like your traditional work day, right, from 8 to 5, that stuff's gone now. The idea that you have to work in the office, that's gone now. Things have changed, you know, forever. And so it's kind of nice to see now everyone's forced to try something new. So we're sort of breaking out of that mindset of like, well, we've always done it this way. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to try something new and be like, actually, this kind of works. And I look forward to seeing more of these hybrid models try and I, I it's from what you're saying it also sounds like as a creator it's kind of nice to be like there's a little more flexibility now as opposed to like well we kind of have to do a, a theatrical release because it's what's expected or we don't really have an option now it's like no there are options and that's exciting for me to hear yeah and people are you know we often encounter filmmakers who you know they grew up seeing films come out on theater in theaters and then you know months later they come out on home video and there's this whole process you know you go rent the vhs and then Years after that, it'd come out on, uh, you know, uh, television or something. And so they they always want their films to come out in theaters first. And now we're starting to see people not necessarily thinking that's the, the gold standard or the right thing to do. And we're starting to hear filmmakers say, well, I'm not really interested in theaters because I know that's probably not a, a viable path financially. And, you know, guys, there's people in the industry who are saying the changes that are happening right now, they were inevitable. The pandemic is just expediting it. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Uh, we're we're lucky. Our distributor, Open Road Films, uh, they have been so innovative with the release of this film. You know, uh, one thing that started they started to see happening was all the big titles from 2020 kept getting pushed to 2021. Meanwhile, Hollywood figured out how to shoot during COVID. There's a ton of productions going on not even at the studio level, but even at the independent level, guys, mm. pretty soon they're going to be back to pre-COVID levels of production because they've got it down to a science. So now we have movies that are getting slated for 2020 release, starting to bump into the 2020 titles that kept getting pushed. Yeah. So our distributor realized that at a certain point, every week later this year, you're going to have a big studio movie coming out. It's going to gobble up the last studio movie. And, and we're not Wonder Woman. We're not Avengers. You know, we're a, don't get me wrong. It's a, it's a big movie and it's, it's a great um, piece of filmmaking, uh, but it's not a hundred million dollar superhero movie. Right. So no. right. they very wisely saw an opening in the marketplace in January when Liam's films traditionally have performed quite well. And we are actually originally slated to release on the 22nd. Uh, but Mortal Kombat and Chaos Walking both postponed, and it left January wide open. So our distributor actually did something that I don't think anyone else has done. They moved our release up <laughs> from the 22nd to the 15th. So, you know, uh, I joke with my partner, Danny, you know, like I'm not sure there was another scenario in which our our movie could take out Wonder Woman, uh, but that's a kind of thing right? Like, and of course, some other things, right? Like the fact that they came out on HBO simultaneously, and sure, and sure. I have been out for a few weeks. But uh, it's been it's been incredible watching these guys work and and seeing the decisions that they've been making uh, to market the film. It's a very complex and ever changing environment. Yeah, that's definitely something I don't understand. Like it's 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 like another language. It's a for like trying to understand all the different pieces. Um, of how it all fits together. Because um, you and I have talked in the past, too, about like, you know, like uh, Tyler Perry's films, right? Great market in the U.S., but it doesn't have a lot of appeal in markets outside the U.S. So it's actually pretty remarkable that his movies have been as successful because basically it's for one market only. 
So, and it's a market that's been pretty starved for so long. But the idea that someone has gone through and figured that out, they understand what people in other countries do. Or like, you're like, wait until we get these numbers in from China because this is a great market for China. Or they understand the intricacies of that. And somehow you can take something creative that's not like a, a true commodity and be like, I can understand the value and the demand for this. And we can know what to expect. Like that to me is beyond mind blowing that someone can understand. It's like, that's some abstract, you know, beautiful mind shit that (laughs) I don't know how anyone's able to figure that out. I do. I do want to go back to what you're saying about the different distribution methods, because it's, it's interesting. I I never thought about this until you just brought it up. It kind of has blown because the straight to straight to VHS or straight to home video always had this stink on it where you're just like, Oh, you know, Oh, this movie came out. And what about a sequel? Well, it was straight to VHS. So don't, I, eh, you know, they were obligated to release it and they held up their end of the bargain, but eh, <laughs> you know, think Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen movies, you know, yeah, um, yeah. wild things too, straight to VHS. There you go. <laughs> right. So it's, uh, it's interesting now that that has become that that concept of straight to home video is actually preferable in some instances. And that to Doug's point, people are smart enough to like look at some sort of a weird mathematical equation and go, all right, based off of X, Y, and Z, that means that we need to do this distribution model and this is going to garner us the most return on it. It's just, it's uh, I'm glad there are people who specialize in that because if it were left up to Doug and I, we'd all be in trouble. Yeah, it, it's uh, people forget it's just as much a, a business as it is an art form. And right. they, you know, they can look at actors, you know, guys like Liam Neeson, and they can look at data. Uh, and I mentioned earlier, you know, Liam's movies do really well in January. Some people call him the king of January. And that's been a trend that we've seen since Taken. And there's a reason Taken 2 and 3 released in January. They were just following that trend. They said, well, it worked last time. Let's try it again. And, you know, they can look at certain actors, certain genres, and they can crunch the numbers and determine the value of a film. And once you get really good at making movies, and I guess you have the experience in contacts, you can work your way backwards from there, right? You can say, if I have this actor, this genre, this budget, you know, how much money can I make back to justify that budget with this particular distribution model? And, and that's that's how you make money in this business. Of course, being able to get to that point is is a challenge in itself. And, it's and its own it. art form. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's there's there's a lot of business involved behind the scenes that people don't think about. Yeah, I mean that's why they we always used to talk about Will Smith being Mister Fourth of July, right? Because they figured out that that was his pocket. So it makes sense that different actors and different genres and makes sense you know uh releasing at different times doug i know you want to you want to give a big thanks yes yeah, so uh, uh we just got rated by fancy ramen tv thank you so much thank you for the rate thanks for everyone who came in uh this is great we're talking with chris charles here uh who is a, a filmmaker uh director writer he uh wrote a movie that's released right now the which i mistakenly said at the top of the of, of the show that is releasing this week, but Chris is like, it came out last week. I'm like, I didn't know that. Uh, it's The Marksman starring Liam Neeson. It's uh, something you can check out now, so you all better check that out. If you got questions, fire them away to Mr. Chris Charles over here. He's a very talented filmmaker. He can tell you all about it. 
Um, no, I, I agree with what you said there, Justin. Um, the the straight to uh, streaming now is not a weird thing. I see it a lot with independent films that I like when I see the um, like. I'm watching trailers, right? I don't, I don't yeah. dive into them as much as I used to, but I always like to try and check out what's coming up. A lot of the A24 stuff, not all of them, but some of those sort of indie films. All of a sudden, it's like I just watched the trailer. I'm like, oh shit, I see that now available on Apple uh, movies. I'm like, oh cool, and I don't look at it as like, oh, they couldn't make it in the theater like the VHS things. You know, we're like all the the they're like wild things too. We're gonna have butt stuff in this one, but it's straight to VHS. You know, like now it's like. There's just that's the right path for for right. those movies is to be like no it's going to be released you know and it's it's going to make sense because those things it doesn't make sense for them to release those in theaters because it's just not going to get what they need and there's been I've been so close sometimes of being like that movie looked really good by the trailer I was like I might because I don't typically rent that stuff I like to I like to to buy it and I'm just like I don't know should I take the risk I don't know and I'll sort of think about it, and then I forget about it and inevitably it'll pop up and I'm like oh, I should have bought that because it was such a good movie. I should have gotten you know, it. Another thing I forgot to mention, guys, you, you just reminded me of this, Doug, but the streamers have played a critical role in, in helping keep the entertainment industry together. You know, for example, Tom Hanks's submarine movie, the title eludes me right now, but oh, they right. couldn't release that in theaters, right? Then along came Apple. They said, okay, it's a $70 million movie, I think. They gave them $90 million for, I want to say, a 10-year exclusive. Uh, and of course... I'm sure the filmmakers and Tom Hanks thought pre-COVID they would have done better uh, with a worldwide theatrical release doing the traditional model. But the fact of the matter is they wouldn't have come anywhere near that in theaters. So Apple saved that movie. And we've seen countless other films coming out on big streaming platforms that would have struggled otherwise or just been postponed for a year or two. And, And frankly, guys, you may be asking yourself, why are some movies releasing during COVID? Uh, some of them have no choice. Some movies are funded with debt and they're getting killed with interest. Uh, yeah. And the longer they sit on their movies, the the harder it is to dig themselves out of that hole. So the streamers have actually played a, a key role, I think, in, in helping keep the entertainment industry going. Well, I just like it. There's, there's options. You know, one of the things I heard a long time ago was that uh, consumers love options, right? Um, to a point, obviously. But the idea of, I think... You know, I've always similar to like the having just entrenched traditions of this is the way we've always done. It. I've also just really generally disliked gatekeepers in these industries where you like, again, going back to music, it's like, oh, do you want to make it? Well, you have to make sure that you get an A&R rep to find to see you. And then you've got to sign a big record deal because otherwise you won't be able to finance recording the album because it costs too much. And these guys have this relationship and then things like. Napster, things like MySpace, things like YouTube have then have then now shut down that stuff or they've made the technologies improve so you can have your own studio on your laptop, on your own device. So it's not so costly to be able to do this sort of stuff. It makes me happy to see opportunities because the way I look at it is the more that's available, it's 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 it, Justin and I have covered this before, but the more you have available, there's going to be more shit, obviously. But at the same time, there's going to be more unique stuff you're going to see out there. There's there's a greater opportunity to see a unique story, something fun, something interesting, something unique. And before you know it, that could spawn something else. And so I'm I'm a huge fan of seeing an, uh, any opportunity to sort of break down those traditional sort of barriers and see for people to get their projects made that normally otherwise would have even been forgotten or, or looked over. 
Yeah, and you know, it's gonna. A lot of people are saying, well, there's too many streamers, and I can't keep track of it all. I can't get all these subscriptions. Um, but we're gonna start to see some bundling, like we used to see with cable back in the day, right? It all comes full circle, and I'm <laughs> yeah, really excited. Exactly <laughs> my my buddy Thomas from Columbia College, uh, he worked at Disney. He and some other executives at Disney, they started a new company, and I can't remember the name right now. They just announced it. And basically what they're going to do is a credit system. So they assume everybody's already got Netflix, Prime, Hulu, and probably HBO at this point, right? Outside of the big four, they're looking at all the mid and low tier streamers. And so stuff like BET Plus, right? Um, Showtime in demand, you know, Curiosity Stream, Discovery Plus, all these different companies that have great content. And so what you do is you pay a monthly fee and you get X number of credits. And if you want to watch a show on Discovery, you assign a certain number of credits to that. If you want to watch the new show on BET Plus, you assign some credits to that. So you can kind of like pick and choose your content without committing to a subscription fee if you're not really interested in the overall library. The other cool feature is a guy like my dad who won't necessarily seek out content and it usually has to just kind of fall in his lap. You know, I may see the the Michael Jordan documentary and think, oh, man, Randy's going to love this, but he's not going to go seek it out on CBS All Access or whatever it is. Right. Okay. And and so I can actually purchase that with my credits and then I can gift it to him and oh. he can watch it and he doesn't have to do anything other than, you know, type in his name and email. Oh, he doesn't no need shit. Yeah, it's, it's a really cool concept. Huh. I think it's coming at the right time and I'm really excited to see what these guys do with it. That is really cool. That is fascinating because for for a long time, I've had the same fear. I'm just like, we had all this innovation to take us away from cable, cut the cord. We had these streaming services and now we have too many. And I was like, well, someone eventually is going to have to come back along. We're reinventing cable and now we're no better off than we fucking were when we started this whole fiasco. Uh, (laughs) But that concept is a very interesting concept where you can allocate credits to, because that also I feel like speaks to the way that people like with uh, you, you, you know, uh, all the rewards programs, people are, you get credit for doing this. Like it speaks to that kind of gamification of it where I have credits and now I'm going to allocate these credits to this thing. That's almost a arcade style thing. You know, I like it too, just because setting up a subscription to watch one show, that's a pain in the ass, man. That's a yeah. real pain in the ass. Like they, that's a good example there, Chris, of like the the Jordan uh, Michael Jordan documentary. It's, it's it's very popular, and so but to be like, hey man, you got to set something up through ESPN to watch this, and you got to put in your credit card information, then you got to remember to cancel it. Like that's a that's a hassle, man. That's a real hassle. Yeah. So the idea because we've gotten bit by that, like where Jill was like, I want to watch Rectify on Sundance, and she forgot to cancel it. So then we got Sundance for a fucking year. And I was like, great, we're not watching this. Great, $50 well spent. Um, It's a a great idea. If you guys ever want to chat with Thomas Wadsworth, I'm sure, you know, he'd be happy to tell you more about it when they're getting ready to launch. I would love to to get his contact and keep him in mind for a guest on the show. I think that'd be fascinating. I'd love to pick his brain on that because I I love any innovation in this this field as I'm a fan of it. I just, I love to see more thoughts on how we can get more people involved with uh seeing content and stuff like that because my big thing too is is and I, i'm not far from the only person who does this but uh the sharing of logins right like that is a huge way <laughs> where 
people like we just just had I just went at half seas with a, a friend for a uh, the Discovery Plus because both of our wives are very very into HGTV and uh I was like well there's some interesting looking shows on here so we went halvesies on the thing but I know that's not the intent on their side is not for people to be splitting these subscriptions they want each of us to buy our own subscription I'm sure they're losing a ton of money so if they can recoup money through something like this credit system I, this there's no reason that they wouldn't want to go forward with something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a win-win, guys, because like you said, you don't want to sign up for stuff, forget about it, pay, yeah. or watch, force yourself to watch something to justify paying for it. And on the other hand, a lot of these streamers are missing out on opportunities because they can't all afford to have that tentpole show. No. It used to be The Sopranos, right? People would get HBO just for The Sopranos, and then it was Game of Thrones for a while. Right. And of course, now we have another Game of Thrones Disney's got the Mandalorian right now, and that's really gotten a lot of people to sign up. Pretty soon they'll have the MCU, and then it's game over. But some of these mid to lower tier streamers don't have those big blockbuster shows. Uh, So you have people that aren't signing up, but they may assign some credits to it just to watch a show or two. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. that's a really good point, you know, because you've also got the Lord of the Rings show that's coming out on Amazon. And uh, some of these other things that are coming down the pipeline. But yeah, like why, like maybe there is one show that I want to watch and this one thing, but I'm not going to pay $15 a month. It's just not worth it. So why not give everyone an opportunity to benefit from it? I get to watch this show. I don't have to sign up for a subscription and this content gets paid for it. Like I want to support that stuff. I'm a big proponent of supporting the people that are making the content because the second you don't do that, like that's when that content goes away. So anti-piracy. Well, the other thing, the other thing that helps going back to our earlier conversation, guys, about, you know, how the marketplace has shifted, the revenues that we are seeing from TVOD, transactional video on demand, we've seen a shift uh, to AVOD, which is advertising based revenue. So uh, especially millennials and and younger generations, they tend to not want to pay for content. Mm -hmm. Uh, They grew up, you know, the YouTube generation just getting stuff for free and maybe pirating things when they could. Uh, So the great thing about AVOD is you can go to a place like Tubi, uh, Pluto, uh, Roku Channel. Uh, There's a number of other ones. Peacock. Peacock is another great example. A lot of them are doing the hybrid model where they're SVOD and AVOD. And you can watch content for free just because you're watching intermittent ads. And the ads aren't that long. So people are willing to do it or they'll just go up and refill their beverage or go to the bathroom during the ad anyway, right? So like we used to. <laughs> like we used to, right? Back to those old days. So yeah, it, it's good. You know, we're seeing more revenue for, for independent films, but across the board, really. Uh, and that's not only because of the, the fact that young people don't want to pay for that content, but also because of the pandemic and people staying at home more and uh, having more time to consume content. Right. Yeah, it's too bad that didn't work for Quibi, am I right? Hey, you. Yeah. Terrible timing. Terrible Wait. timing. It's just That was just so unfortunate for them. That was like a great idea, and then the pandemic happened. It's like, sorry. There's a, there's a, um, uh, on, on, I can't remember what streaming service it is, but there's one show that I would, I would give all of my credits to. If if this came out, Doug, are you familiar with this show? I think I know what it is. Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was. Welcome 
Oh, wow. Was that a Wilson wow? Wow. Wow. Everybody. That's a drop that I need to get to this. Yes, you want to have a Wilson wow? Come on. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wait, hold on. I think I might have it. Doug, get ready to. I'm ready. Oh, you're ready? Yeah. Okay, hold on. Did I get rid of it? I probably got rid of them because I never used the app. I used to have an app that had the. Uh, oh wow! That's all it was. A, That's all it was for. No, no, no! It had like. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that was it. That's all it was for. No, it had. Uh, it had like five or six different like uh, sound. Like it had the Inception blah thing. Oh. Do it. It had that, um, but one of them is I was just sifting through. I clicked on it and it was the oh wow and I'm like well that's odd but I like this <laughs> I like having this on demand but I deleted the app so fuck it never mind um Douglas let's do it this week's throwdown is Liam Neeson from The Marksman versus Clint Eastwood from Gran Torino also known as Get Off My Lawn that's how yeah. Justin referred was, to it last night. When I was, was pitching it last night, I'm like, what if we put Liam Neeson from The Marksman up against Clint Eastwood from Get Off My Lawn? And the thing was, I knew exactly what he was talking about, but yep. I also cannot remember the name of the film. <laughs> so, so, Chris, what do you think, man? What do you think? Liam Neeson's character from The Marksman versus Clint Eastwood from Gran Torino. What do you think? The Both character that you wrote. Verse <laughs> the character, yeah, that I didn't write. <laughs> no there's bias of, here. There's a lot of inner turmoil, right? Because Gran Torino is one of my favorite movies. And and by the way, on the topic of Clint Eastwood, go see The Marksman because there's a little Easter egg in there, <gasps> and it's it's a Clint Eastwood esque Easter egg. Oh my gosh! Uh, so uh, you know, just some, that's all I'm going to say. But uh, all right, check it out. Um, so obviously, Clint is an OG. Okay, he's been in some of the most iconic westerns and and even contemporary films. Uh, he is he is the grumpy old man. You know, like he, <laughs> it's like he invented the character, right? Um, and, and he's especially dangerous in Gran Torino, right? Because he's got a lot of anger inside and he's got nothing to lose. Uh, that being said, uh, Liam Neeson is not one to be trifled with. I don't know if you guys heard, but he has a particular set of skills. <laughs> Somewhere I've heard that. I, I, could, I know firsthand because I saw him using those skills on set with my own two. So... <laughs> While this is tough, you know, I think ultimately, I think Liam's going to win. And uh, I say this because I, of course, wrote The Marksman. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I'm a little biased, but but I really do believe, guys, he uh, Liam's got the height advantage, okay? Okay. And even though he's older, I mean, I'm a tall guy. I was looking up at him, okay? Uh, I took a photo with him, and he was towering over me. Wow. I had no idea. He's got the reach, too, okay? And while Liam has an incredible stunt double and coordinator named Mark, who uh, 
uh, he puts on a prosthetic nose and he wears identical wardrobe. Yeah. The guy looked so much like Liam. He he has the same mannerisms that I like thought he was Liam at one point and said something to him and he turned around and I was like, what the? I looked <laughs> What's the fake nose? <laughs> Which one's Liam? <laughs> it, it was really cool. But So Mark did some of the, the fighting, but Liam yeah. did some of his own stunts. Oh. And he could throw down. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. He can throw down, guys. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say it's a good fight. Um, but I saw Clint against the chair a while back. <laughs> and, and I could see that he wasn't quite all together. So I, I feel like because of the chair matchup. Yeah. And because I know what Liam's capable of, Liam's going to win. Well, I mean, here's it's the thing. It's hard to argue that. It's hard to argue that they both have pretty good like gun skills, though, right? Like, I mean, their 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 weapon skills are pretty on par. So, I mean, obviously, if they, I feel like if they get into fisticuffs, I'm giving it to to Liam's character. But I mean, right? Well, he has, he's he's also known as the marksman. Tips. So, I mean, he does you know he does yeah. know how to handle himself from a distance. I would assume as well, right? Because his well, character is like a marine, guys, right? Guys, every gunfight, they're going to eventually run out of bullets and go to hand-to-hand combat, right? That's true. We've seen enough movies. Slotty says, Liam Neeson has defeated each and every chair he's ever encountered. This is a fact. Oh, yeah. He, Liam Neeson feeds chairs to the fire. He doesn't debate him. He doesn't debate him. Liam Liam Neeson walks confidently, confidently into a pottery barn. Clint Eastwood, like he comes in real worried, real trepidatious. I yeah, think that like, says all. That's all. Liam Neeson's not looking right for a diplomatic solution when it comes to chairs. He's looking no. to break them. So, no. done. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's that's right then and there. That's it. Also, to what you said, Liam's just got a particular set of skills. I've never heard Clint boast about those. So. I'm sorry. It's it's so, got to be. Is it unanimous? I oh, think this so. is unanimous. I think yes. so. Liam Neeson for the win! Full disclosure: never seen Gran Torino, so oh. I when Netflix used to mail the movies, I had that one in my possession for a long time. Never got down to watching it, so I had to send it back. He's old. He's racist. That's all you need to know. Got it. So he's, um, so he's not playing a character. Cool. And get off my lawn. Um, <laughs> what uh, I did want to ask you before we let you go, though, I did want to ask about uh, uh, the badassery of Liam Neeson on set. Like, is he is he pretty conditioned? And like, does he he's gone through a bunch of fight training, I'm assuming, based off of everything that he's done. But like, how how was his presence in those fight scenes or in any sort of action scene? Yeah, he actually, I think he just talked about this on James Corden or something too. They asked him if he has to keep training and, and stay in shape. And he he takes every role very seriously, guys. He he talks to weapons experts. He he makes sure that he's holding guns correctly. And um, he always refreshes himself. But uh, I, I was really impressed. You could tell him had done a ton of movies. He had handled every kind of gun. And he knew exactly how to handle these weapons, even just setting them down, you know, like wow. the little things that you don't think about. Um, you can tell when someone is familiar and comfortable with a weapon and when they aren't. And yeah. he's just been doing it for so long. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was very confident uh, when it came to the physicality. Uh, he's, 
you know, Liam's an intimidating guy just because he's Liam Neeson, but he, <laughs> he really is a gentle giant. You know, he's, he's kind, he's, you know, when he talks to you, he looks you in the eye and he takes his time. He's not trying to, you know, get to the next place he's got to go. I, I mean, the, it was incredible on set the first time we met him and he found out we were the writers. He just immediately like sat down and wanted to talk to us about wow. how much he loved the story. Yeah. Like he, That's we, uh, we, he was so in the, cool. he was walking from set to his trailer or something and he certainly didn't need to. And, and we were introduced and, and he, we talked for like 15 minutes about uh, the movie and the character. And he was talking about ideas he had for dialogue and, um, my favorite part was he was, he was like running an idea by us. Like, what do you guys think of this? Like, uh, as if I could be like, I, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, like it, it made me feel very powerful, you know? That's so cool. But it was yeah. so, it was so endearing, right? He was, he was asking us because he was respectful of the, the work, the, the right. craft, you know, and. He uh, he reads a lot. He's I think he just said he's read like thirty two books already wow. during the pandemic, and he reads a ton of screenplays. So uh, yeah, he he's an intimidating man at first glance, but yeah. he he's a very kind and loving soul. What if what if he's like Chris, Chris, Chris? All right, I like the story. I think this is great. I think my guy should have two penises. I think that really affects the way that he walks, and I think that it will really affect the way that he handles most situations. You know, we could make it happen, Liam. Was I'm sorry, was that Jason Statham or Liam Neeson? <laughs> I don't think that was either, honestly. <laughs> was it Vin Diesel? That was think, almost Vin Diesel. I don't know. I don't know who it was. but uh, I think that was just Doug's morning voice. <laughs> I was trying to channel him from uh, A Monster Calls, which is voice-modulated, deeper voice for some reason. I was trying to channel that. <laughs> Which is, thank uh, you, thank you, Doug's Liam voice is spot on. I was confused for a moment. They always are. Uh, by the way, Fancy Robin TV says in, re- in regards to the throwdown, I think the real lesson here is to always make sure you write your protagonist to be indestructible and unbeatable. I was like, yep. That's how you win throwdowns. <laughs> yeah, right? Do you, you want to win? You don't come to a throwdown uh, being, a, being a big old, oh, I get hurt too easy. No. We don't write Jubilee here. We write, you yeah. know, unbeatable, powerful protagonists, you know? Right, Justin? <laughs> well, Chris. No, no, no. Well, no, no. <laughs> well, Chris, we're so thankful uh, that you're able to rejoin us again. This has been so wonderful. Um, before we go, uh, we want to make sure you give you an opportunity to, uh, if there's anything you'd recommend, obviously go see The Marksman. Uh, if you want anywhere uh, you want people to follow you or anything you've watched, read, seen, whatever that you'd like to recommend to people, uh, the floor is yours, sir. Sure, yeah. Please see The Marksman, whether that's safely in theaters or you know when it comes out on demand this spring. And uh, other than that, I could say uh, my wife and I are really enjoying The Expanse, uh, one of the, the, the best sci-fi shows on TV right now. The world that they create on that show, you just believe. And um, it's, it's made with a lot of integrity. So that's my jam right now. Uh, looking forward to jumping into WandaVision next. I've heard a lot of uh, interesting things about it. And then hearing your thoughts too, guys, once we all have the chance to watch it. <laughs> Heck yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Justin, what do you got? Uh, well, I'm almost done with this show called Breaking Bad, and I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but you should check it out. Uh, halfway through the final season, and it's getting pretty good. I think 
I think I see some positive stuff on the horizon for this guy. So <laughs> I'm excited. He's uh, an entrepreneur, you know? He is. Yeah. I'm very excited to see how we wrap his storyline up. Um, so then uh, I'm also reading Norris Mythology by Neil Gaiman. And uh, that's my first book for 2021 in my commitment to read at least five books this year. And I'm very excited that I've got like two chapters left and January isn't even done. I'm on track, baby. So, nice. Uh, I would say watch or w- watch watch Norris mythology with your eyes, word for word. There you or go. Or read it. That's another way of saying read it. Oh, you like, like what it. Do you got? Uh, I've got also something that's very, um, you know, recent and notable, which is Master and Commander, The Far Side mm-hmm. of the World, starring Russell Crowe. Uh, watched it for the first time on Friday. Uh, fucking great movie. And then the next day it was trending on Twitter because apparently some guy said it was the most boring movie. And Russell Crowe responded. I'm like, I just watched this movie. It's not boring at all. It's fucking awesome. You all should watch it. I'm not a big boat guy, as you all know. I'm not a naval person. I don't like it, but it was fucking amazing because you typically watch shows like Pirates of the Caribbean and there's 12 people managing a boat. And it's like, no, this is a real boat. 200 people live on this boat and uh, it's fucking awesome. It's really, really cool. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime right now. Go check it out. It's it's a new movie and it's good. It's, it's good. Bingo bongo. Bingo bongo. Also, don't forget to follow MindGap on all your social medias at MindGap Podcast. Uh, be sure to check us out on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Podcast. And also, don't forget to check us out on YouTube. We have our own channel there where we post our full episodes as well as highlights from our shows. And also, don't forget to follow Justin in the online world as well. Yes, on Instagram and Twitter at Justin underscore Michael, spelled M-I-K-E-L. It's the fun way of spelling it. And while you're in the online realm, check us out on Spotify. On Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Podbean, all the places that you can find and consume podcasts. Share us around, like, subscribe, rate, review, all those things. The big one is sharing. And then twoeastaith.com slash mindgap and twoeastaith in general. Just keep an eye on some of the stuff we got coming up in the next few months. Nice. Chris, thank you again for hanging out with us. This was great. And I hope you enjoy your second viewing of The Marksman this evening. Yes. Have fun tonight. Thank you so much, guys. Always a pleasure. Awesome. And to that, I say, Justin, thank you. Douglas, thank you, sir. Twitch, thank you. And listeners, thank you. And you all have a dandy fucking week. Mind Gap Podcast.